Well, today is the third Sunday of Easter, and two full weeks have passed since Jesus of Nazareth's victory over death on behalf of humanity. If we had been alive at this time during the year that he rose, sometime in the early half of the first century, then we would have carried within our hearts the hope and expectation that perhaps we might catch a glimpse of him. For 40 days after his resurrection, Jesus reportedly lingered on earth and visited the people he loved in order to demonstrate his physical bodily resurrection from the dead. He verified the rumors that he had risen from the dead and he dispelled the ones that claimed his body had merely been stolen. The gospel writers recorded several of his interactions during those 40 days. But the gospel that recorded the most of these conversations was John. In John's gospel, there are five post-resurrection appearances of Jesus. And these are the stories we are looking at together during the 40 days of Easter before Jesus ascends to the Father. And we began last week with Jesus's visit with Mary Magdalene in the garden outside of his now empty tomb. That visit concluded with Jesus sending Mary to preach the gospel to the apostles who had denied and abandoned him and were now fearfully hiding behind locked doors. Jesus's commission of Mary is a reversal of the story of humanity's fall in the Garden of Eden, where a woman brought the forbidden fruit to a man and together they fell into the miserable state of sin, dragging the entire human race with them. And Mary, we now see a woman bringing the gospel to a group of men, and together they rejoice in the redemption of humanity through Jesus Christ. This wasn't intended to be read as a, a narrow act of vindication for women in particular, but a picture of humanity's storyline being undone through Christ. The story of humanity's fall is being replayed in another garden, and this time the result is rejoicing. A rebellious race that was once cast out of the presence of a holy God was now being brought back into his presence through the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, a human being, and yet God. We are told that God stationed an angel with a flaming sword at the gates of Eden to keep Adam and Eve at bay, but Jesus charged those gates and was pierced by that angel's sword of fire in order that humanity might regain access to God, our creator, and enjoy his eternal blessing and benevolence. He died for our forgiveness. And in the resurrection, we see the fruit of his death is reconciliation and resurrection. In Jesus, we see that through faith, our eternal future is an embodied existence beyond the reach of death and the many injustices of this world. And this is the hope that Jesus commissioned Mary Magdalene to bring to the apostles. We can only assume that she was faithful in fulfilling her commission because John does not tell us about the conversation between Mary and the disciples. The next story that John gives us, the story that was read for you by Wendy earlier, is Jesus's visit to the disciples, not Mary's. John sets the scene for us in the opening verse, verse 19. We are told that on the evening of the same day that Jesus met with Mary, 
the disciples were huddled together with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. John, who throughout his gospel plays on the themes of light and dark to communicate deeper meaning, mentions that it was evening to simultaneously mark time and reveal the emotional state of the disciples. An archbishop in the fourth century wrote, it was evening more by grief than by time. It was evening for minds darkened by the somber cloud of grief and sadness, because although the report of the resurrection had given the slight glimmer of twilight, nevertheless, the Lord had not yet shone through with his light in all its brilliance. The disciples had heard about the resurrection of Jesus from Mary, but their faith demanded more. Their fear and the padlocked doors revealed that they were all doubting Thomases. They needed to see and touch him in order for the full glory of the resurrection to light up their darkened minds and unlock their still closed hearts. Their actions reveal their still darkened state of doubt because they contradict the message of resurrection. They were hiding for fear that the people who had killed Jesus would kill them too. And yet they had been told that Jesus was alive again, which meant that Jesus had proved himself greater than even these people's power to kill. He had proved himself greater than death. The person to fear, therefore, is Jesus. He's the greater threat. And yet look at how his actions and words convey nothing but sympathy and peace for the people he loves. First of all, he, he pursues them where they're hiding. It's the same thing that God did with Adam and Eve in Eden. They were pathetically hiding from God behind bushes and fig leaves, and he pursued them. This is his ancient pattern of grace. He pursues us in our fear, our shame, our guilt, wherever it is that we're hiding. And he draws us out with assurances of his love and peace. Those are the first words out of Jesus' mouth in verse 19. Peace be with you. And to further soothe our doubtful and anxious souls, he repeats himself in verse 21. Peace be with you. But whereas God could only make promises about future redemption to Adam and Eve in the garden, Jesus is able to invite the disciples to touch him and see the scars in his hands and side. The ancient promise of redemption has taken on a body and become more than mere words. It's become reality. Jesus is our redemption and our reconciliation. It's through his broken body and spilt blood that we can come out of hiding and find a God who is interested in our good despite our attempts to rebuff him. He's not deterred by our sin but pursues us all the more passionately. Our brokenness only intensifies his love for us and his desire to heal us. He loves nothing more than taking weak and faltering people like you and me and the disciples in that room and redeeming us. He heals us by working within us in secret and unseen ways. And the second time that 
Jesus gave his peace to the disciples. The text tells us in verse 22 that he also breathed on them and said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. And the word that is translated as breathe here is actually a rare word, but it does appear in two other places in Scripture. The first is in Genesis 2-7, where God is said to have formed a man from the dust of the ground and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and the man became a living creature. And it appears again in Ezekiel chapter 37, verse 9 where the prophet is looking out over a graveyard full of dry bones and a wind, a breath from God, begins to blow over these bones and they begin to rattle back to life. Tendon and muscle and flesh appear and the dead are brought back to life again before Ezekiel's eyes. The breath of God is animating and brings life out of death. And it's no mistake that the Holy Spirit is often referred to as a wind or as God's breath throughout Scripture. It is the work of the Holy Spirit that Jesus gives to believers to transform people from within, bringing life out of death, strengthening what is weak, and fixing what is broken. This is the work that he is daily doing in his church and promises to do in you if you come to him in faith. But our redemption consists in more than just personal redemption, personal restoration. God goes further than that, and he scandalously uses us as instruments of his divine activity in a world that is hostile to Christ. We live in a world where people are still sadly hiding from God, from a God whom they believe only saves those who are good or whom they despise because they believe him to be restrictive. But the Bible tells us that neither of those are true. God saves those who are unmistakably not good by accepting the goodness of Jesus on their behalf. It's called grace. And look at the freedom he gives to those he calls his own. It's a freedom that is unachievable through any earthly means. You no longer have to worry about others' opinion of you. You no longer have to worry about your own opinion of yourself even. It's Jesus who defines you. And he says, you are mine now. And I'm giving you the Holy Spirit as proof, as the down payment of my purchase of your soul. In fact, he goes so far as to accept the work of Christians, work done in his name, as though it were his own. This is a mysterious reality that I don't entirely know how to explain. But the Bible often holds in symbiotic tension the work of humans and the work of God and speaks about us as cooperating and participating in the will of God without sacrificing God's primacy and control over all things. God's providence, his control over everything, doesn't nullify the requirement for our obedience and our actions don't threaten God's providence or put him on his heels in a position of reacting to what we do. God has promised to successfully accomplish his will on earth, and yet at the same time, promises to include our prayers in the process. God promises to 
wash us, to make us clean, and yet at the same time promises to work through the waters of baptism that we pour over the heads of infants and adults alike. God promises to feed us, and yet at the same time commands that we eat, eat the bread which he calls his body, and drink the wine which he calls his blood. He works in and through us to accomplish that which he has promised to do. We are made participants with God, so that our actions on earth have spiritual implications. God and redeemed humanity no longer contradict each other when under the power of the Holy Spirit, humanity does those things that God commands and requires. The actions of a Christian become sacramental in nature. And we see here in the last verse of our passage this morning, that the act of forgiveness is just one more way in which the church participates in the divine action of God in this world. We proclaim the forgiveness of God and the need to turn to him in faith and repentance. Our practice of forgiveness is divine in nature, giving hope to anxious and guilty souls. Miroslav Volf who's a professor of theology at Yale University, has written exclusive, uh, extensively on the Christian's role in the act of forgiveness. And he locates for us this divine empowerment to forgive in the life of the Christian. When he writes, because God has forgiven, we also have the power to forgive. We don't forgive in our own right. We forgive by making God's forgiveness our own. And even then, we don't forgive the fact of someone's guilt, the so-called objective guilt. God has already done that. We help remove the offender's feeling of guilt in, order to, in regard to us, the so-called subjective guilt. And what do I do when I say to someone, I forgive you? In effect, I tell her, because God in Christ doesn't count your trespasses against you, and because God has removed your guilt from you, I too don't count against you the fact that you've wronged me, and I don't consider you guilty. Because God has taken away the burden of guilt. I too, in my own way, can lift the burden of guilt that the offender rightly feels toward me, even after God has forgiven him. And so the world experiences God's forgiveness through us, the church. And we are able to extend God's forgiveness to others because we have experienced the depth of his mercy and forgiveness in our own stories. Forgiveness is an act that opens up the possibility for grace in a person's imagination and sets them in search of the source of all grace, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. And so we pray for the souls of those who consistently offend both God and man, that experiencing a foretaste of Christ's divine mercy in us, they would come to him and be made clean. The hope of repentance and forgiveness is always a possibility as long as a person lives. And so we are sent into the world to preach the gospel always and everywhere. We are sent into the world to make known what we, with the disciples in that room as well, on the day Jesus rose from the dead, have freely received as a sheer act of grace that Jesus came to us and he sought us out, hiding deep in the recesses of our minds and hearts. He became like one of us and he died in our place. 
but he did not remain dead. On the third day, he was resurrected in a physical body, and the new life he now knows will likewise be ours when we eventually die as well. We will be raised in a physical body and will exist beyond the reach of death. But until then, Jesus has taken us, weak and sinful as we are, and he has filled us with his spirit so that day by day we are being made more and more like him and drawing closer to the full realization of our redemption. In Jesus, we see our glorious future, but he has called us to live like him in the present, without fear, but full of love. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen.